Welcome to the RH Podcast. We talk about business, software, and everything in between. Visit our website at www.recursive.house. Welcome to the podcast. Today we have Mark Woodworth. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, that's right. All right. All right. Fantastic. So Mark is a treasury engineer and I really let him introduce himself and talk about himself a little bit because I think most people are more interested in him than me. So could you just give the viewers a little bit of intro of who you are and what you do and yeah, just an intro. Yeah, sure. So I work at a a large bank in the Bay Area doing treasury engineering, which is somewhat of a a nebulous term, I guess. I don't think it's a very common title. And it's somewhat by design. I think we were looking for tech solutions in the treasury space. And we wanted to have a title that was kind of appropriate for that because it is a very narrowly focused specialty. And the idea is basically our role in treasury is risk management for the bank. We're essentially managing the bank's balance sheet. And my role specifically is liquidity risk management. At least that's what it originally started off as. And the goal with liquidity risk management, it's not too different than if you were managing your own personal finances. You want to have a prudent amount of liquid funds set aside so that if some unforeseen event happens, you're not put in a precarious situation. So common rule, some might be three to six months of your salary set aside in case there's an unforeseen hospital bill or God forbid you lose a job or something like that. You want to have enough funds to kind of get you through. It's the same thing at a bank level, obviously greater scale. But there's a trade-off because at the bank, you're, one of your main roles is to earn a spread on the liabilities that you are taking in and then the loans that you are holding as assets. So you can always be in a situation where you have enough liquidity by simply holding everything in cash and not investing anything in loans or securities. So that's at the one end of the spectrum where you're basically ensuring that there is no risk of any sort of liquidity event happening, but you're not going to earn anything because you're not earning any interest rate on your cash. Right now, it's basically zero. So it's kind of a a giant optimization problem where you're trying to figure out what is the optimal amount of liquid assets that we need to hold on our balance sheets. Those are things like cash or very liquid investment securities, short-term treasuries. What's the optimal amount of those that we can hold to meet any modeled outflows? And there's a bunch of different scenarios that we'll run the bank through to figure out what we think those outflows might be. So one example might be we base it on something similar to the 2008 financial crisis. You want to have enough funds on your balance sheet to offset those modeled outflows, things like deposits leaving the bank, so that you don't have to go out and seek outside funding. Basically, they're trying to avoid another 2008 from happening where the banks are all in this liquidity crisis and then have to get bailed out. So that's kind of the role in a nutshell. Obviously, it's a very kind of high-level description. And within that role, I was constantly working on projects where it was very clear to me that there was ways to leverage technology to make it more efficient. And I didn't really know enough at the time, because my entire career in finance, at least when I came out of school, I don't know if it's still the case, I'd have to ask some of the younger students graduating, but it was Excel is everything. Like you use Excel as your bread and butter that's pervasive in finance. But I would see scenarios in which you're looking at hundreds of millions of records because you're looking at every single account transaction-level detail over a large time frame, and you just can't do that in Excel. You're going to crash the spreadsheet after you get over a million and something rows. So I was trying to find other solutions. And that that is actually kind of the gateway into programming because the first obvious solution was SQL. Okay, fantastic. So I want to get deeper into the problem of what it means to solve for what you do on a daily basis before I get into technology and why it's a good solution. So you talked about why you would do this sort of managing liquidity, right? And which kind of makes a lot of sense. So you do want excess, you do want to make sure you balance it to the outflow, right? So is there a heuristic that we can think about? So we say, okay, how do we want to think about making sure that that's true? 
on a daily basis? How do you know that you don't have enough? Because there's so much going on that how do you really think about this? Like from a personal say, okay, I see this number is not good. Or what are you looking at to say, this is not good. What is a red flag to you? Sure. Well, you can never know. You can never know for sure because they're models and all models are wrong to some degree and some are useful. So one way that you would know is you run your bank or we're talking about personal finances. You make some series of assumptions around your personal finances. You think what's the worst case thing that could happen? And for some things, you would just simply look to history. At a personal level, you might know, oh, there was this time when I was unemployed for X amount of months. And then, oh, I also got an accident and had to pay for a doctor's bill. And you would get an idea of what the total amount was and then what amount you would need to offset at the bank level. It's obviously more complicated. So you might run your bank through a bunch of different scenarios. And uh, one of them can be based on looking at what happened to your institution. And then to the extent the information is publicly available, other institutions during the 2008 crisis, which is kind of the last major global crisis. I think last March, there was kind of a, a mini short-term crisis related to COVID, but that mostly abated within about a week. So a lot of it's looking at history. There's some challenges because when you're looking at your history, you have incredible fidelity into the data. You can look at everything, capturing it. You can look at the accountable information for as long as you've been recording it and do a very, very detailed analysis, but you only know what happened to your institution during that time. So you might want to look at the history of other banks and the challenge there is you only have access to what they publicly announced through their financial filings or their call reports, which is another form of regulatory filing. And those are only produced once per quarter. And a liquidity crisis can happen over the course of days. I mean, when AIG had their major liquidity squeeze during the crisis from all of their derivatives portfolio blowing up, it was like over a couple of days that that happened. It wasn't really a solvency issue. If they had enough liquid funds to survive that short-term liquidity squeeze they were under, they would have been fine. That's just not the case. And they didn't have enough reserves set aside. And we all know what happened there. So it's a historical analysis. And it's uh, definitely somewhat art, somewhat science. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. So for what I'm getting from this is that the amount of liquidity that you're supposed to keep is almost seasonal to some degree, right? Because you want to maximize on how much you're investing, but you also want to make sure that you have enough. So based on historical events, you can say, here are the cycles of tendency and here's the market structure. This is the way the market is behaving right now. And here are the potential risks. And this is how much liquidity we need for the way that it might behave. Yeah, it's dynamic. So I'd say on a shorter time frame, seasonality plays into things. So if you're looking at kind of shorter term cash management, you want to be aware of fairly obvious things like in March, there's going to be a big buildup and deposits related to people anticipating tax outflows. And then shortly after March, those deposits are going to leave to pay the taxes. That's kind of a shorter term, like day-to-day cash management concern, which is a component of treasury that I'm a little bit less involved in. But the longer term kind of strategic outlook is what the stress testing is about. And that's not so much concern with seasonality. It does play some part in it, but that's really what are the different market events or idiosyncratic events on the institution that could result in outflows and what is the amount of asset buffer we need to offset those. And there's many different scenarios you can run. One is what happens if interest rates suddenly rise by you know, 200 basis points, for example, we know that the securities portfolio is going to go down. How much is it going to go down? How much does it impact the bank? Things like that. Okay. All right. So my next question is, how in the world was this done without automation, without technology? How were you doing this with Excel or even before Excel? So how was this even being assessed? How was it possible to not assess so many dimensions like that you would need to assess, right? Like- yeah. So to be clear, we're not doing that at my current institution in Excel. And we, as far as I know, we never were. Maybe in the very early stages before I joined, there was probably a preliminary model that was built out in Excel and how it's done painstakingly, I guess would be the answer. Yeah, yeah. With with a lot of concern. (laughs) Yeah, you you would have to source a lot of information from a variety of disparate source systems in the bank because you might have multiple deposit source systems where you're taking in deposits at a branch through one source system 
And then maybe there's a, a separate one if you acquired any institutions along the way, and they're all going to have their own conventions for how they label deposits and what the categories are. And you have to basically consolidate all that into one giant spreadsheet. So it would be incredibly manual. Most of the time for larger institutions, particularly those that are subject to the Fed's liquidity regulation, which is the LCR, liquidity coverage ratio, those are very large institutions, over $250 billion. You, at that point, are probably going to be using a software solution. You can have some homegrown stuff. But there's banking platforms like QRM, quantitative risk management, that basically will help you model the bank's balance sheet and evolution of the balance sheet, including liquidity scenarios as part of their offering. So for large institutions, that's how it's done. I think when the LCR first came out, the capital was $50 billion. So your bank would have to adhere to this liquidity coverage ratio requirement, which is another form of liquidity stress test. The difference is instead of the bank doing the analysis to figure out based on their history or similar bank's history what they think the potential risks might be, the regulation is essentially given to you and they say, here's the scenario, apply it to your bank. So then it's a data exercise. You basically have to map your balance sheet into the slots that they assign different outflow coefficients, or if you're talking about securities, the amount that you assume can be available for sale. So maybe you have a 5% haircut on, on a mortgage-backed security. And then you just figure out, based on the assumptions they hand you, whether the bank passes or fails. So... At that level, for the smaller institutions, when it first came out, I think there was a challenge because not everybody had the systems built out for that type of analysis. I mean, this is very detailed work where you have to basically slice millions of different accountable deposits at a very granular level. So essentially, I'm going to summarize, there's some software that has an understanding of the kind of, it has a bunch of models, basically, and then you're supposed to essentially take the information from your bank, pop into those models, and then you're actually going to get results from that and says, okay, this is how you should behave. Because the software already has all the regulation and all the information that, that it says that it can provide, basically. Yeah, kind of. I don't know if all of the information around the regulation is in there. You probably, you're still going to have to go through the trouble of taking your, just to really focus on deposits, because it's one portion of the balance sheet. There's a lot to focus on, but I think it's an easy one to give an example for. You might have one deposit that is from a retail client that has a certain balance amount, and he's fully insured because it's under the FDIC insured limit. That's a very low risk deposit, and they are assigned low outflow rates and basically every stress scenario, including the LCR, because they're sticky deposits. Usually customers that are FDIC insured aren't concerned about their money in the event of any sort of liquidity crisis. On the other hand, you might have a large financial institution and they're managed by probably a treasury officer within that organization who's mainly driven by rate. So they're going to be not as sticky the minute they think they can find a better deal unless it's a really strong relationship, they're going to go there. So they might be assigned a higher outflow rate. So you have to basically look at all of your deposits at the account level and figure out what type of deposit is this what have we experienced with the customer in the past? You have to slot into the appropriate category for the stress test. The software solution is not going to do that for you. You still have to do the mapping. Yeah, yeah. You do the mapping. Yeah. The software solution is basically a giant cash flow engine. So it, it knows how do I take balance for a given product at time A, roll it forward to time B, and then apply all of the various effects to the appropriate financial statements that would occur with rolling forward in time that particular instrument. So with a deposit, you roll it forward one day and you have accrued interest until it pays out. So that's going to impact your income statement, your balance sheet, cash flow statements, so on and so forth. So that's essentially what the software does. And at a very small scale, you could do something like that in Excel, but it's going to be a lot of work. You're going to have to do everything by hand. That's obviously incredibly error prone for a variety of reasons. Mistakes on the input side, just manual data entry. And you could have mistakes with how you're modeling it because it's not really like a well-tested, you can't really do unit tests for Excel. No, absolutely. So yeah, it's a financial simulator and you do the inputs. Okay. So my next question is, 
Where did your interest in technology fit in there? So you started off with the Excel, like you said, and which you may have not mentioned here, but we talked a little bit before, but you told me you started off with Excel and where were you in that space of all these solutions and how were you able to say, okay, I might be able to make a contribution here. So my background was not in computer science or programming at all, it's, I guess, unconventional path to, to end up there. And the closest I ever got to programming was basically using a lot of Excel. And if you use that at a very advanced level, it is similar in many ways to programming, especially functional programming. And if you're using VBA, you're actually doing programming at that point. So I started off building these financial models at my first job, and that was a lot of Excel. So I kind of got a taste for thinking the programmatic way using Excel. But after a certain amount of time, when I moved on to these treasury rules, you're looking at such a huge amount of data that you really can't do stuff in Excel anymore. So I started researching. Sorry to interrupt. What were you using Excel for? This was a totally different role. It was my first job out of college, and it was for a small bank in Texas that was an interesting institution. They hired me right before the 2008 crisis. It was actually like in the heyday of the last bull run right before the mortgage crisis, when everything was great and people were flipping houses and getting rich left and right, late 2007. And I guess the owner, who's a very brilliant kind of a guy, knew something was coming. He had a sense for this type of stuff. So he was staffing up in preparation for what would be the 2008 crisis. And we were basically tasked with trying to identify syndicated bank loans and bonds. So these are debt instruments that are issued by institutions. And we were looking at the high yield space, which is a nice way to say not so credit worthy borrowers. And we were looking for situations where these assets were selling at distressed prices. And we thought that they were safe bets at that current price level. So maybe something that is usually issued at par. So if you issue a bond, usually it means you're, if you owe $100 million, then if you were to buy a bond at par, it's $100 million. You can buy them at a discount in the secondary market. So once a bond or a loan is issued, it starts trading. And then if the credit deteriorates for that particular borrower, typically the price will go down to compensate for that because you obviously don't want to pay full price for something that you think might be a riskier asset. So the game there was let's find these distressed assets that have been so beaten up that we think that they're a good value. There's certainly going to be credit risk. That's the reason they're pricing so low. But do we think that price is, a, is enough to compensate for the credit risk we're taking off? So you always want to look for a buffer. The way that banks do that for mortgages, for example, is you always put a 20%, a standard down payment would be 20% on your house. That way, there is a built-in equity cushion for the lender right off the bat of 20%. It's called a loan to value. So they only want to loan a certain amount against the value of the house. Most people are familiar with that concept. It's kind of a similar thing on the credit side. There's no direct asset you can look at because it's really the cash flows of the company. There are cases when you can look at the actual assets if it's a, a loan that is secured by physical property, for example. You can treat it like a traditional hard asset lending problem, but that's what we were hired for. And for the first six months of that job, it was just crickets. There was nothing to do because the economy was roaring. There was no distress whatsoever. Everything was great. And I remember being so exceptionally bored that I was at my desk studying for the CCNA, the Cisco Certified Network Administrator test, because I thought, okay, I've always liked computers. Clearly, this was a mistake. I'm not doing anything useful here. I'm going to go back and do the CCNA. And then 2008 happened. I went from having nothing to do with, to being completely inundated. And there was constantly deals to look at. Prices were just plumbing. They were in free fall. It was absolute madness. And there was companies that we knew were going to be able to make do or had a very high degree of certainty that they'd be able to make good on their, on their debt that would be trading at like 60 cents on the dollar strictly because of forced selling. So 
a kind of a long-winded answer to get there, but Excel was our tool of choice to build out these models and kind of summary financial views of different financial institutions so we could pitch the debt instruments that we wanted to buy to the bank's board. And then there was so much data because of this unique situation in the market in Excel that it became very clear that that actual application couldn't handle the sheer amount of it just because of the unique situation you're in or? No, no. For that particular role, Excel was perfect. Did the job very, very well. There wasn't a huge amount of data because you're mainly looking at a company's financial statements. So if you're looking for four years and you have a quarter each and you use 16 different data points and you have a bunch of columns in your spreadsheet, and then you build out a model where you're basically making some assumptions around the growth rate, and then you discount the cash flows back, you discount someone else to get the present value of the company. It's fairly standard stuff. It's the financial theory is all very well understood. So there wasn't a huge amount of data to deal with for that particular task. It was later when I switched roles and left that bank and started working in treasury, where you're looking at the bank's entire balance sheet, and you need to make assumptions around particular deposit types or accounts, and you're looking at account level detail. That's when it was just there was way too much data to, to actually analyze in Excel. And I actually did have a very brief foray into SQL when I was at that first organization, because for a short time period, they acquired a mortgage servicing company. So that's basically, if you were trying to keep track of where borrowers are with their payments and things like that, that's what mortgage servicers do. It turned out to be, I think, a little bit more difficult than they originally anticipated. So the way that they were basically tracking these different payment statuses and where borrowers were with respect to their mortgages was in uh, Excel spreadsheets in different locations and emailing back and forth. And it was just very disjoint. There was no cohesiveness. It was a very manual, laborious process. So we had one DBA, it was a small bank. There was one guy who knew SQL and he was in the background like, hey, this is clearly something we should be using this for. So I remember trying to learn a little bit about it. And back then there was still Borders books at the mall. So I went there and got this giant tome of a book that was like a doorstop this big. And I opened it up and I got five pages in and like fell asleep. It was just so incredibly dry and boring. I just couldn't do it. So table that, eventually they got rid of the mortgage servicing company. So it was no longer a concern anyhow. And then years later, it came back around. And at that point, like it was clear I was going to have to learn it. Because I remember when I first applied, I asked, is there anything in my resume that looks like maybe I could use a little bit of expanding out on? Is there something at this role that technologically you think might be useful for me to learn that I don't have experience with? And my manager who was hiring me said, you might consider learning a little bit of SQL. So I said, okay, I'll learn some SQL. And then day one of the job was, okay, here's the query we use to break out the different deposit categories by the types we need for the stress test. And it was like 800 lines of very, very dense SQL, which I guess depending on who you ask might not be that much, but to me was incredibly daunting. I thought, oh my God, what have I got myself into? I'm never going to make it here. Uh, but that's not how you start. Inherent lines is a lot for anybody, just to be clear. Yeah, yeah. It <laughs> certainly felt like it. You know, it was clear to me that I was going to have to learn this. And you don't learn by trying to digest 800 line complex query at once. You do simple things like, we want to know how many days this customer has had a balance of this amount. And those are kind of small self-contained problems. So you start there. And I found it just so much more interesting and easier to learn that way than trying to read a book. I guess everyone's got their learning type. And for me, like I'm very much one of those, what I cannot build, I do not understand type people. So if I don't have an applied way to try to learn the thing that I'm interested in, it's never going to stick. So after a couple months of that, I would slowly kind of expand over time and build increasingly complex queries. And I was really into it because I was seeing all these things that depending on the ask, it's not technically programming, it is, but the fact that I could build something once and then from then on out, I just open it up and press a button and it's done. There's no more work to do. It just works. That was, I guess, Excel was the first gateway. Then it led to SQL. And then after SQL, I thought, 
okay, so this is really good for relational data. What if I wanted to do something more general? What should I be looking at there? And at the time I was Googling like beginning programmer languages and Python was like the thing. This was back when learned Python the hard way was really prominent. I think it still is, but it had just come out maybe a couple of years before that. And all my research was pointing towards, okay, Python is a, a very good beginner friendly language. The syntax is fairly easy. It reads like pseudocode. If you don't have a lot of experience programming and I had none, you should start here. So that's essentially what I did is I started off with Python, went through Learn Python the hard way, and the rest was history from there. So what did you end up building with Python when you first started? What was the first thing you went with? Not a lot of useful things at first. Mainly I was just playing around doing like project Euler problems and different puzzles to try to see if I could solve problems using Python because I needed to have some degree of confidence that I could actually solve small toy problems before I wanted to apply it at work. So I guess the first major application I can think of where it was clear that it would be helpful to use at work was downloading different reports from a variety of websites. So we used to have rate information we would get from the Federal Home Loan Bank and other data sources. Like the Fed has an API, the St. Louis Fed called FRED. There's all sorts of information on there. And what used to be done is somebody would open up the browser, go there, download an Excel spreadsheet, clean it up a little bit, and load it into some table manually. And I knew enough at that point, it was still very early on in my, I guess, programming career, but I knew at that point that, okay, I know how to make network calls. I can use requests to go out and get this stuff. I know how to interact with the database using ODBC drivers, like PyODBC library using ODBC drivers. This seems like something that could be automated. So why don't I try to do that? And eventually I got it to work and it's been running for like six years now to where every morning we just have it running on a cron task and it goes and downloads the information we need and then it shows up in the database. So it was a lot of ETL stuff. That's probably the biggest initial use that we found was all sorts of ETL. Okay. So I want to talk about some of the things you like about Python and some of the things you don't like. What are the things you like about Python that really got you... And then, and then we'll, not that you don't like, but you were frustrated, frust, not, maybe not like you were, what you were partial to or you were not partial to. I'm always going to have a soft spot because it's my first language. And I know that's kind of weird to hear because I think most people that are real serious programmers probably started off with C or depending on your age, maybe they're doing basic or Pascal or something like that. And I like completely missed the C and C++ timeline, completely missed the Java timeline, and then went straight to Python, which is arguably a scripting language, but I think programming is programming. It is different, obviously, depending on the language you're using, and it's going to frame your thoughts differently, but that kind of structured thinking is very similar and shared amongst all different languages. So the things I like about it is that it's a low barrier to entry, at least it was back then. I think it's getting increasingly more complex, and I... I don't know how I feel about that, adding feature after feature. I think it's starting to turn into a kitchen sink language. Look, I love pattern matching and I use it all the time in other functional languages, but I just don't know if continually adding every single feature people ask for is, is a great path forward for that. So I like the fact that it's a gentle on-ramp. I love the fact that there's a library for anything and everything you want to do. It's very difficult to replicate an ecosystem. And I think that's probably Python's greatest strength in addition to obviously being beginner friendly and having a pretty friendly syntax is that you have very strong libraries in a variety of domains. Data science is obviously the kind of the identifiable grill in the room. I think people have tried to recreate that and it's just very difficult. There's so much traction already in that space. So it's the libraries and ease of use. Yeah, yeah, that's very fair. So with all that being said, then how did you end up in the language that you're writing about right now? Functional languages, how do you get into that? So when I was trying to learn and get better as a programmer generally, I was taking all these little online courses and I came across one on Udacity that was called CS212 Design of Computer Programs by Peter Norvig. 
who's the director of research at Google, really brilliant guy, worked at NASA Ames Research. I think he was like the head of their computational sciences division for a while. And this course was, I thought, pretty advanced. And you could see in the forums that people were struggling with. It was not spoon-fed at all. And I think it's because he was targeting it at MIT-type students. So they were freshman students, but they're, you know, brilliant freshman students. And he wrote in a very particular style that I just hadn't seen before. Extremely succinct, very concise, used a lot of functions, not a lot of classes. He would use mutability where it made sense, but it was somewhat de-emphasized, not a lot of global data. And he used recursion all over the place. And I guess it's a little embarrassing to admit, but I was still new in my career and recursion was like very hard for me to comprehend at first. And I would continually run into these recursive algorithms and just hit a wall and think, okay, I'd have to sit there and try to trace through it in my brain and keep the entire call stack in my head, which is really not the way you should be doing it. And you get four or five layers in and human memory, working memory is seven plus minus two. So at that point, I had lost my train of thought. And you really should be thinking more like inductively. What's the base case? How do I build from that base case and combine it with solving a smaller part of the solution to get to the bigger solution? But I really didn't have that framework for thinking about it at the time. And I started researching Peter Norvig's background and saw that he had programmed for a long time in Lisp and Lisp, while it's multi-paradigm, is often written with kind of a functional bent. And clearly that's how he's writing Python in a very functional way. So I thought, okay, maybe I should try to learn a language that forces me to use recursion. There's no way out. You have to do it. You're going to get comfortable with it. Try to attack your weak point. And I started looking into Common Lisp, and it's still around. It's a little bit older. I don't know how common it's used in industry. It certainly is still used, but I saw that Clojure was up and coming and had full access to Java. So that would make it easy if I wanted to ever use it at the bank or other institutions because Java is everywhere now. And it basically had a lot of similarities with Lisp, but it was even more functional. And it really emphasized immutability. So I was like, okay. I'm going to have to face my demons here. Closure is the language we force myself to get better at functional programming and really understanding at a deep level kind of recursive algorithms. Were you doing this in your spare time or was this... Uh... In my spare time. So it wasn't really for work at that point. Yeah, it wasn't for work at that point. So you were you were still with Python at work doing the scripting for the ETL stuff and that was yeah. fine. Okay. Yep. This is pure interest. Okay. But I was running into a lot of roadblocks because there were certain algorithms that I wanted to understand that I couldn't. I was super interested in, in AI before deep learning was a huge thing. There were still various machine learning and symbolic AI algorithms that I think were used. And I wanted to learn a little bit more about the symbolic ones, which actually came up in CS212. So things just like search, common, combinatorial optimization, and recursion is all over the place there. I couldn't comprehend these algorithms because I didn't have a solid grasp of recursion. So that's when I started saying, okay, I'm going to try this closure thing out and see how it works. So it, it really wasn't, I didn't know all of the benefits to immutability at that time. I wasn't getting an enclosure because of its excellent concurrency features, which I came to love later. Well, I didn't know what I didn't know at the time. And after programming for a couple months in Clojure, I started reading through structure interpretation of computer programs. And there was parts I could understand, parts I couldn't. I would just slowly attack that over time. And on the side, I was doing these four closure problems. And that really helped. That was a huge, huge help to me. The way that I have to learn is I just really need to solve a lot of problems. Reading is only going to take me so far. So I think doing a couple of those every day. And then the most important part is you look at people's solutions afterwards and compare yours. That's when I finally, I think, got it and everything clicked. And I kind of understood how to, at least I think I understood how to properly program things in a functional way. Because I was still thinking in this very imperative mindset and trying to use like loop recur for everything when that maybe was not the best solution. You should be thinking more in terms of manipulating sequences and using the sequence functions that Clojure provides. So that was, uh, I guess, the initial on-ramp into Clojure. 
And then the more I used it, the more I liked it, the more I tried to do things that work that involve concurrency. So now you're a little bit more out of the scripting realm where you're running a file on a scheduled basis that doesn't need to stay online. You just run it. It does its thing and then it's done. There's no like staying online, trying to respond to different inputs. It's just one-time thing. But if you're trying to do more systems programming type stuff, you're going to have a long-running process that needs to be able to interact with different user inputs, uh, make calls out to the internet, and you don't want to block when you're doing any of this. So there is threading, obviously, in Python, but there's something called the global interpreter lock, so you're only able to do it from one core. And Clojure does not have that limitation. If you have a multi-core system, you can have threads running in parallel on multiple cores. And I thought that was pretty compelling. And I didn't really, that wasn't the original reason that I got into Clojure, but the, the more I used it, the more I realized, okay, this is a very well-suited programming language for the types of problems I'm working on, which are largely manipulating data and interacting with a variety of different services. That's really, really cool. That's a very, the point of this is to really see how people got into the closure or even to functional languages in general. And yours is a very unique journey, I must say. So how do you see yourself like using this in the future? What kind of problems do you see yourself solving like with closure in the future? If it's anything more than just interest. I'd like to use it to solve actual problems at the bank. I think there's always a little bit of an impediment because you're using what is still, to be fair, a somewhat niche language. And as far as I know, I'm the only one that uses it or would be using it at the bank. So from their perspective, if they had to hire someone to maintain something I wrote and I'm no longer there, there's a bit of a risk. But I think the fact that it is a JVM language and we're using Java already somewhat mitigates that risk because you can start small and work on like one particular service, which is my plan for you know, getting the, the Trojan horse into the bank is to find one small focus project, some sort of microservice where I can use Clojure since we're already using job everywhere else anyhow. And specifically, some of the things I can think of, there's a project I've been working on to basically act as middleware for wires that we're processing. So if somebody wants to send wire out to a different customer or really anywhere, there's a new format called ISO 2022 for these wires and the middleware that I was working on basically would take a wire in a different format, a fed wire format and translate it into this ISO 2022 format and then put it in a queue somewhere else to be eventually processed by the Federal Reserve Bank. So that's kind of a very small focused task that I think Clojure is very well suited for because it's data manipulation. You're basically translating from one data type to another and Clojure is very good data manipulation. And there's a lot of interactions happening at the same time. You need to be able to handle a lot of different users sending wires and you need to have sufficient throughput to where nothing gets blocked. So I think uh, that's probably the first serious project you think of using Closure at the Bank, but I'm sure there will be others, especially if I get it right and the project is a success, it makes it a lot easier to sell that going forward. So another question I have is how have people received if they've seen any other projects like you've done in Closure? Like, how are you slowly bringing this in? Because... A lot of people, they, they like these languages, but they have a hard time or they don't, maybe don't even have the experience on how yeah. to like slowly get people into things. Like that's its own skill. Yeah. Are you asking how the others at the organization would view it or, or how I would kind of get people into it? How to get people into it. And if the other people in the organization have seen it, seen some of the things you've done, like how have you got them interested in taking a look? 
How are you getting people interested? Honestly, the only people that are going to be interested are other engineers. And I'm somewhat of a, a lone wolf with our team. I'm like an embedded, I'm not really an engineer. I'm a finance guy, but I know how to do some programming. So I'm one of the only ones that does that type of stuff. There's tons of data scientists that are very proficient in R and the Pandas Python library. And they know some programming, but for this particular task, I think I'm a little bit alone. So I don't know how many people would be like interested in nerding out about functional programming languages, it would be somewhat of a sell for them because they're not going to see the immediate benefit. I think there's other people in the organization that are more strictly engineering focused that would be interested. And I know they've explored things like Elm, for example. So there's clearly some interest in looking at functional languages and the benefits therein. So I think getting people interested would be tough in terms of selling it to the consumers. I don't think they care. They just want a product that works. It does what they want and it does it well. So if I can do that, they're not going to look into the covers and see how simple Fair enough. Thank you very much for being on the podcast, uh, Mark. And uh, it was very interesting hearing about how you came to this point. Like it's a very winding road. It's been full of a lot, a lot of entertaining things. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. How do we find you? You have a Twitter handle. I got a LinkedIn and then, yeah, I have a, I have a Twitter handle. I think I have like, you know, 30 followers or something like that. So <laughs> feel free to find me there. Yeah, seriously. I recently put out an article on destructuring. What's it called? It's restructuring, destructuring on Medium. It's a bit of a deep dive in how to actually implement destructuring. I've used it for a long time and really liked it. And I wanted to kind of know how I would implement it. And I also wanted some experience with macros. And I knew that you had to basically transform source code to, to generate the appropriate access or functions on the data structures you want for destructuring to work. So for example, when you mirror a map and then you're destructuring the value on the right-hand side, the map is basically being used to translate get calls on the associated data structure on the right side. So you have to use macros for that. And macros are something that I had kind of avoided for the first several years of learning closure. It seemed like a bit of an arcane art. And I wanted to work on a project that really forced me to get more familiar with. So this seemed like a, a good project for that purpose. And the first part's done. It's a pretty long article. I didn't realize how long it was going to be when I first started it. And it leaves off with a, a bit of a cliffhanger because we have an implementation, but there is a flaw in it. And my plan is to refactor that and fix the flaw in the next iteration. So hopefully I'll get to that within the next week or two. All right. How many parts uh, are you planning to have with this? Probably just two or three. Okay. So I guess we'll watch out for part two or th and three or three Please do. and or three. All right, Mark, thank you so much for being on the podcast and it was great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the RH podcast. Visit us at www.recursive.house. We're a consulting company that help businesses build web and mobile applications. We also help businesses with digital transformation to move them into the digital age.